Well, we are going to get started because it's already almost five past. If you're coming in or if you're here and you didn't get a handout, this might seem like a lot of information. It is. It's uh, the first, sort of the first thousand years of church history, all condensed into two pages. But um, if you didn't grab one, there's a pile over here by the door. And um, and those who come in later, um, maybe somebody could just kind of grab, direct them to those things. So let me let me just say this: I am not a historian, so um, I'm not even going to pretend uh, that I know everything about church history. Although I love church history, and uh, I'm sure there are some of y'all out there that could probably even do a better job with the details. What I want us to do this morning, and as you know, this class over the next 12 weeks is going to uh, investigate the five solas, which are the um, sort of the five crowning doctrinal points that emerged from the Reformation that happened in 1518 or started in 1518. And hopefully you're wondering, what is the Reformation? Or maybe you're wondering, uh, what are these solas? What does sola even mean? Sola means alone. And so uh, we crystallize what the, the cores of, of the Christian faith are in these solas that emerged out of the Reformation. And those solas are Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Now, what I hope you're also wondering is, all right, that sounds pretty normal. Sounds like what I've, I'm used to growing up hearing, maybe. Um, and, and maybe you're also... I would like to investigate those uh, a little bit uh, to kind of learn more about what it means to uh, say that you know, Scripture is the only place for authority. Scripture is the only place where we hear from God. I want to know a little bit more what it means to say that um, we believe that faith is the only instrument that, that brings us to Christ. It's not works, and that's by His grace. And we're going to get into that over the next 12 weeks. But what we're going to do today and next week is a run-up to... How, how, how and why did we need to have a Reformation in the first place? Um, where did everything go sour, so to speak? Um, and so my goal here is to sort of outline some of the key turning points of, of church history and look at the development of the church and its doctrine, but also look at the development of the church and its uh, administration. Okay, um, And we're going to begin to see really quickly... <laughs> where this starts to go left and where this starts to go right and, and why, why a Reformation was necessary. A lot of people who um, are either new to what we might call the Reformed faith or uh, the ideas of the Reformation um, sometimes tend to think that, well, this is sort of a new doctrine. This is a new cr- Christianity that was emerged in the uh, 16th century, and that is not true. Um, the Reformation is always a going back to what the church had always professed to begin with. And so we see the Reformation as just another point on the, on the map of, of God's church coming back to what is true, coming back to Scripture, coming back to grace and faith, Christ, uh, for His glory. Okay, So that's a little bit of what we're going to be doing uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. And then um, three weeks from now, uh, we will start with Scripture alone. One quick announcement, and I'll pray and we'll get started. The... Is it the 18th that um, Jessica Harris is coming? Okay. That Sunday, 
we will postpone. Uh, all Sunday schools will be in here to listen to her, for those who want to listen to her. Uh, it'll be a little bit different than what she's doing Saturday evening for the women only, but that'll be a, um, that'll be a kind of an all-skate, if you will, opportunity to listen to her. And so we will hit pause on the solas and then what they're doing upstairs on the Sermon on the Mount to be in here. And then after that, we'll pick up with our regular, uh, regular program. So let me pray for us and we'll jump in here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for uh, your faithfulness and commitment to your church. And I pray that as we look a little at the history of the church, that we would uh, see your faithfulness, that we would see your love and care for uh, your bride. Um, And we ask that uh, that would uh, grow us closer to you and that we'd see you as, um, as reigning over this church and as it continues to move forward. And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen. So we're going to start with the first 500 years, as you see there on your sheet, and we're going to start at 325 A.D. And the reason we're starting there is, you know, I mean, we could, we could be here all day going through all the church fathers and going through um, all, you know, all kinds of stuff. But 325 is important because this is where we have the Council of Nicaea. And this is where we get the Nicene Creed, which is something that we still, um, you know, talk about and confess um, together as a body, as a church. And just so you kind of see that, I'll, I'll try to do less reading, but um, no promises. Um, what the Council of Nicaea was fighting was Arianism. And one of the things that we need to remember about the councils, some of you all are familiar about these, this wasn't the church sort of getting together thinking, we need to start coming up with rules. Um, The church didn't really have a need to do that until heresy started coming forward. And so there was this, the church was was this body that was moving out throughout um, Jerusalem and going going west and going east, and it was proclaiming this gospel. And like any organization, if you will, it isn't until somebody comes and attacks the orthodoxy or the uh, integrity of what you believe that you begin to say, hey, wait a minute here. We need to come together as a body and we need to begin to put down doctrines, put down creeds as to what it is that we believe. Or this is just going to continue to happen. Or, or these other strands are going to uh, you know, grow legs and they're going to um, you know, advance throughout the world. And so one of the first major um, councils that we... We come to is the Council of Nicaea, and again, and again, this was fighting Arianism, which Arius said that Jesus was basically basically denied his deity, and he, his whole point was more of a logical, rational point was that if 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 God the Father is the creator of all things, then how can something he created, assuming Jesus, be God as well? Now, look, that's a good question, right? I, I, I get it, and. Um, and so he began to um, he began to to promote this, which which caused the church to come together um, at, at Nicaea to begin to discuss this and say, look, how do we begin to formulate and begin to speak against uh, this heresy? Uh, you'll see there on your handout uh, just this quote here: Arius's appeal to to what he considered the logic of monotheism illustrates a recurring tendency throughout Christian history to subject the facts of divine revelation to current conceptions of the reasonable. Does that sound familiar today? If Arius argued God was absolutely perfect, absolutely transcendent, and absolutely changeless, and if he was the originator of all things, 
without himself being derived from anything else, then surely it was obvious that everything and everyone else in the universe was set apart from God. And if everything and everyone was set apart from God, then Jesus too must be set apart from God. Yes, Jesus may have played a special role in the creation and redemption of the world, but he could not himself be God in the sense that the one God was uniquely divine. Uh, some of the key players at this, um, at this council was Athanasius, who is considered one of, um, one of our church fathers, uh, the Bishop of, a- of Alexandria, also nicknamed the Black Dwarf. Um, he came through and basically laid the groundwork for the incarnation of Jesus and how Jesus was both, uh, both God and man, um, which would also come back up at the, the Council of um, Chalcedon later. Uh, but those are a few, um, a few, a little bit of the overview of this council, and you'll see its key assertions. So this is kind of the, this is kind of the grunt work where all these guys gathered and kind of hammered out um, this theology that we hold on to today. And so you'll see there, number one, Christ was, and this is the, the, the what's in italics is what the council prescribed: very God of very God. I mean, you've 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 heard us say that maybe you've memorized that as you as we say the creed would you ever ask what does that mean and why did we actually have to write that out um to say that he was very god and very god is to say that jesus himself was god in the same sense in which the father was god so it is a it is a claim to say that jesus while he while man was the same god as the father the second thing that came from here was that Christ was of one substance with the Father. And this is this whole debate between homo usius and homo usius, which is same substance for similar substance. And so, yeah, believe it or not, that little I there actually makes all the difference in the world as to what you believe as a Christian. Because if you believe that Jesus is not the same substance, but you believe that it's a similar substance, then you don't have substitutionary atonement. You don't have the forgiveness of sins. You don't have, which Athanasius would argue for, um, someone who can identify with you as a human being, but also do something about your current situation and state, which is uh, only, which only God can do. And so they fought over this. Well, this I. I'm making it you know, the difference between uh, those two words. But um, but the, but the council came down hard and said, no, 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 no. Jesus is same substance. The second thing, that Christ was begotten, not made, that he existed from all eternity. The fourth thing, Christ became human for, for us men and for our salvation. This phrase summarized the burden of Athanasius' concern that Christ could not have brought salvation to his people if Christ were only a creature. Humanity could not pull itself up to God. Salvation was from God. And then finally, because the Nicene Formula of 325 was not immediately accepted by the church, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, the formula was reaffirmed and is the version we use today. Uh, what I mean by that is that, so Nicaea began to formulate what we just read here, but it took a while for the churches, you know, we, we don't have like Facebook, we don't have the connectivity that we have. It took a while for the churches to digest this and take this in. And so we have the later council there at Constantinople in 381 um, that reaffirmed all of these things, Okay. So what are the political ramifications of this? Because a big portion of what we're talking about today and next week is the political ramifications of what the church is doing. With the sudden conversion of Constantine, which was the uh, familiar with Constantine, uh, Roman Empire, who essentially turned Christianity into a popular movement, 
right? So before, in the first, second, third centuries, Christians and Christianity uh, was being, um, um, what's the word? I didn't, um, persecuted, thank you. They were being persecuted. And then Constantine, emperor, becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden, it's, it's in. It's okay. We we're not going to persecute Christians anymore. And now you have this weird transition from being persecuted to now being friends of the state. So with the sudden conversion of Constantine, and this was in the 5th century, the question became, given the fact that the emperors would now, in some fashion or other, support the church, where did the emperors fit in relationship to the church? This question wasn't a, wasn't a great, uh, at the time, uh, wasn't as great, excuse me, as Christ's divinity, but it is the question that would dominate the church and the world, for that matter, over the next thousand years. Even to this day, we have questions about the role of church and the state. And most people would pin that beginning with Constantine. And it kind of raises an interesting question. Is the church better off being persecuted? Are we better off being in lands that aren't friendly, where we are forced to um, you know, hold out in those, those ways? Or are we better off in a place where we can, quote-unquote, get in bed with the king? Right? It's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, what does that mean for America? Right? Uh, is it better for Christians to be in a place where Christianity is assumed, actually, where the nation is assumed to be Christian? Or is it better for us to be in a place where that's not as friendly? Um, something to think about. Uh, that's rhetorical, by the way. So keep your opinions to yourself now. Um, let's move on here. 354 to 430 AD, Augustine emerges. And Augustine is huge for us as Christians. And he essentially establishes the doctrine of grace for us, amongst other things. Um, Augustine is famous for his writing, the confet- his confessions, and then the city of God. Uh, but he got into it with a guy named Pelagius. And um, this, this was all about how people come to salvation. Is it something you can do, or is it something that God does to you, for you? So I have some, some good quotations here from both Augustus, Augustine and Pelagius. Um, there at the top there, I guess at the back of page one, this is from Augustine's Confessions. Thou didst call and cry to me to break open my deafness, and thou didst send forth thy beams and shine upon me and chase away my blindness. Thou didst breathe fragrance upon me, and I drew in my breath and do now pant for thee. I tasted thee and now hunger and thirst for thee. Thou didst touch me and I have burned for thy peace. And also, give me the grace to do as you command and command me to do what you will. So uh, Pelagius' teaching, uh, he comes along and this begins to become another heresy of the church later, but basically he said that we are born born neutral. And, um, and because we're born neutral, meaning neutral from sin, we have the possibility within us to do good or to do bad. Therefore, goodness and even perfection is attainable to us. And so this was, as you can you know, stretch your imaginations here, I know, but you can see how this is attracted to people and how this is um, also um, causing the church to have to figure out what it is that they believe. Uh, from Pelagius' defense of the, free, of the freedom of the will, he writes... 
we have implemented in us by God a possibility for acting in both directions. It resembles, as I may say, a root which is most abundant in its produce of fruit, not fruit. It yields and... Do you, wait, do you all have fruit there? Did I make that correction? Okay, good. I made that correction before. This is the old copy. It yields and produces diversely according to man's will and is capable at the cultivator's own choice of either shedding a beautiful bloom of virtues or of bristling with the thorny thicket of vices. But that we really do a good thing, or speak a good word, word, or think a good thought, proceeds from our own selves, nothing good and nothing evil, on account of which we are deemed either laudable or blameworthy, is born with us, but is done by us. For we are born not fully developed, but with a capacity for either conduct. Okay? So, let's stop there for a second. We kind of a, can see the two different um, <clears throat> positions here. How is how, how is the Pelagian position, uh, co- you know, coming into conflict with the doctrines of grace? Pelagius would have a tendency to say we are, we are all Adam and Eve. We're not t- tainted by the fall, if you will. We're not tainted by the curse. Right. So, I can see why he might come up with that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. All this stuff sounds great. You just have the eternal intestinal fortitude to do it. Yes, yes. And if you can do it, then you don't need what? Grace, right. So, we begin to see this is not going to go away. And the church is going to continue. You know, it's going to come back to it. It's going to go away. It's going to come back to it. But as we get into and move up to the Reformation, you're going to see why uh, the Reformers, and actually those that came after the Reformers, solo, solo, solo gracia, right? By grace alone. Uh, but here, here are Augustine's response here to Pelagius' teaching. He said, one, Adam was created perfect, but by sinning lost the freedom of his will. Two, as the children of Adam, we are then born sinners. Three, and so we are unwilling and unable to do good. Four, therefore, God's grace is necessary. God gives his grace freely to some. There is growth in grace, but perfection in heaven. Okay? This is Augustine. This is his response. In Augustine's theology, um, Charles Williams says, Man was not in a situation not even in a difficult situation. He was himself the situation. And only the grace of God could alter the situation. So, so that's where we are. And as we move into uh, 451 AD, the Council of uh, Chalcedon, uh, this was, okay, great, God, or Jesus is God, but how can he be man as well? And so this is what this council debated. And um, the council said that Jesus was one person consisting of two natures. All this stuff laying the foundation for the doctrines that the church holds today. Um, so that, that's kind of all that really happened, you know, in the first 500 years, to put it mildly. And uh, as we move into the second 500 years to go from the 6th century to the 11th century, um, we're going to begin to see the development of uh, institutions. Uh, we're going to see the papacy rise. We're going to see uh, armies and kings come into um, more, um, more positions of power with the church, okay? So before we move on to the next 500 years, any questions about anything that we've talked about?
with Nicaea or Augustine. Okay, good. So uh, one thing that's hard to remember at this point, East is still the best here, right? So uh, Rome uh, certainly gets a lot more credit, but the church was primarily in the East at this point, Constantinople, um, and this is where essentially all of the churches, you know, sort of, it was its Mecca, if I could use that phrase at this point in time in history. But that's going to shift, um, here. So at 530 AD, we get uh, Benedict's rule, and we get what, 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 sort of what defined the next 500 years was the development of the monastery and the, the monastic movement, which was, uh, not to go into great detail about it, but it, it, was, it was kind of the, the calling of, of those who would give their lives to the church for the service of the church. Yes? No, no, no. Benedict's rule. So, yeah. So, uh, the rule, as it was always referred to, was Benedict's uh, bringing um, sort of this list, and I thought about printing it out, but maybe that would be overkill, of what it is that you do as, a, as, as somebody who goes into the monastery. It was a rule of life, and it was very detailed and very disciplined. And so, those who would want to come into the monastery and give their lives to the church and service and work, this was the rule that you followed. And it wasn't easy, right? It was, it was, it was, there was a lot of self-sacrifice, extreme discipline, um, but it gave so much life from the outside looking in to the church. People respected this so much, and they began to see, at this point in time, there was a high value of the church for those who would give their lives over for this, for the service of the poor, for example. That was part of the rule. Um, there wasn't any of this at this point in time. You've got to remember that Christ- the reason why we care about the poor, in one sense, isn't some like progressive idea that you know that the left or whoever else feels like you know we really care for the poor? Um, Christians, right, were the ones who were really developing um, uh, this new idea of caring for those who didn't have anything else, and that was part of the rule. Part of the part of part of monasteries, um, you know, moved into uh, the cities and then moved into the places to you know to handle all this stuff and. Uh, people wanted, people, people admired that. I mean, it was great, right? So this, this is where that stuff is getting developed. Um, so that's what that is. Um, the, so uh, look there, St. Benedict wrote the rule in the first part of the 6th century in order to guide monks to holiness and correct the monastic abuses of his day. Uh, five centuries later, Bernard of Clairvaux um, was called to reform the Benedictine monasteries had lapsed into worldliness. So that's the direction they're going to go over the, over the 500 years. Okay, so <clears throat> monasteries are happening. The rule is in place. This is what the church looks like. And then all of a sudden, in 622 AD, something emerges uh, in the east, uh, in the southeast, and that's, that's Muhammad and the, 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 the move of Islam throughout uh, northern Africa, the east, and also parts of Spain. Um, you see there on your sheet, Muhammad's flight from Mecca to Medina happened in 622 A- A.D. Islam spreads for 100 years to India and Spain, and by 732 A.D., Islam is defeated in the west at Tours, uh, the Moors in Spain. If they had won, it would have been the story of Islam for the next 500 years instead of Christianity. Um, now, this is crucial because of what it does to the east and the west church. 
Um, and this is where the politics of it begin to come in play because um, I'm, I'm going to butcher a map right here. So, like, you know, you have, like, isn't that, that's Italy, right? Everybody knows that's Italy. And then, you know, oh, my gosh. You know, Constantinople's over here. And then this is, this is where, you know, Israel is. Do I have that right? Close, close enough, right? And then, like, Spain is somehow, like, right up in there. I don't know. And then you have Morocco and Africa. Okay. Yep. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So, uh, we'll just say this is the east, and then this is, this is the west, okay? And for the most part, you know, like I said, this was, this is, this was king over the first 500 and even part of the second 500 years, and, and Christianity is just kind of going everywhere. I mean, it's just this, this spread, okay? And it hasn't really gotten up into France and Germany and, um, and the British Isles yet, Okay? What begins to happen is as, as, as Islam emerges, it basically cuts out, it comes in all over here, and it comes in, uh, and it basically divides the East and the West at this point, uh, or, or threatens to get into the West, and it begins to come up here as well. This is Spain. And why this is important is you begin to have this pressure, obviously, where, okay, we've got, we've got, we've, we've got these wars going on, we've got people coming in and taking us out, and we need help. And so the East just suffers, and it begins to, gr- begins to give more rise to the West, to Rome. And um, not kind of trying to go into all kinds of detail, but you know, we get the Crusades out of this later on, which, were, which was a huge failure. And uh, there was division as to how that was to, you know, was that to happen? Why should we do that? And it's interesting to look at the geography of all this because this, this forces the Western church to move north. So when, as I read before, when, when Islam was defeated there in Spain, that, that defeat caused the Western church to actually be able to, to, to survive and move on. Um, and it's why, in these next 500 years, the West becomes, you know, the more important, not the important, the, the the part of the church that has the most authority. And the reason why this is important is because the West is about to anoint an emperor. All right, and this is when we get to 800 AD. We get to King Charlemagne. And this was, you know, this was, was it the most significant, but it was a, a clear divide and split of the roles of the church and the state. And um, what most people look at, and I'll go back to Gregory the Great here in just a second, but... Most people look at what happened in 800 A.D., actually on Christmas Day, when you see the crowning of King Charlemagne um, by Pope Leo III. I think that's who it was. Um, I'll read this for us. It said that uh, was not the same order uh, as the Council of... So the crowning on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., was not the same order as the Council of Nicaea or the founding of the monasteries. The crowning was a dramatic symbol of relationships undergoing permanent change. What made the papal coronation of 800 so important was not that it represented the height of papal power yet. Rather, it represented a strategic alliance between the papacy's gradually expanding influence and a political power that, like the Pope, was also expanding in influence as well. Um, So this is going to make more sense next week when we look at all of the ways that the Pope and the kings of England and all this stuff is just meshed and intertwined and 
and how doctrine is just being completely thrown out the window, and we're actually, uh, you know, elect, you know, electing people who don't even believe this stuff. We can begin to see why the church is completely begins to lose its way. But th- this begins to happen here at 800 A.D. with Charlemagne. Let me back up for a second here and, and look at uh, Gregory the Great here, because this is also where some of these um, key uh, Catholic doctrines begin to take place as well. So I went a little bit ahead of myself um, with, um, with that. But you'll see the place of Christianity. As we mentioned, you have two major centers. You have Rome and you have Constantinople. You have the, the great spread of Christianity now moving into England, Ireland, and Scotland and Russia, um, largely because of the movement of Islam to the south. And then you have great political leaders like Charles Maine that we mentioned uh, begin to really press the boundaries of, of, of authority. When we look at Gregory the Great, we see a couple things that, that he... Um, that he really pushed for, and one of those was uh, this doctrine of purgatory um, that we probably have heard about. But um, you know, purgatory was this idea that even Augustine sort of alluded to, um, and, and there, you know, there, the scripture references. You know, you can kind of see where they get this from. But uh, Augustine sort of alluded to it, but he didn't really push it as far, and he certainly didn't claim it as a core doctrine. But Gregory the Great comes along and is like, I want everything to do with purgatory. This sounds great. Um, Yes. No, wait. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so Gregory, um, tr- I thought, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, he was, okay. Um, I always get confused when the ones that are added the great, I always forget, are they the great because they won some battle or are they great because, but it's, that change, maybe that changes later, I don't know. Sorry. So uh, look, look at this for a second here about um, purgatory. The, the, August, the Augustinian doctrines of predestination and an irresistible grace were set aside by Gregory, who was more concerned with the question of how we are to offer satisfaction to God for sins committed. This is done through penance, which consists of uh, contrition, confession, and the actual punishment or satisfaction. To these uh, must be added priestly absolution, which confirms the forgiveness granted by God. Those who die in the faith and communion of the church but without having offered satisfaction for all their sins, will go to purgatory before they attain their final salvation. The living can help the dead out of purgatory by offering masses in their favor, but that's going to change to what later on? Alms, which is money. Gregory believed that in the mass or communion, Christ was sacrificed anew. And this is a notion of the mass as sacrifice that eventually became standard doctrine in the Western church, until it was rejected by Protestants in the 16th century. Why, did, why, why was that such a hill to die on? Which is why we say, you know, Christ alone. Um, why, was this, why was this rejected? Why do we not believe in the Catholic version of Mass? Which is, which is, which is as it says there, Mass is a sacrificing of, of Christ anew for the sins of his people. Yes, yes, so you all know this stuff. Um, but this is, that, this is where this goes, right? Um, so this was a huge, huge practice. You begin to see that if the church is going to say, at this point in time, it wasn't as power-hungry or dangerous, but it was just thinking about, as we read here, um, you know, um, the question of how we are to offer satisfaction to God for sins, this idea of trans, uh, transubstantiation, trans, uh, in communion of sacrificing Jesus anew for the sins of his people, 
gives a ton of power to the person that's actually doing the act of administering uh, the supper. And now you've got to come here and you've got to do this. And you have to be on good, good, you know, good, good page with me, too, as well, um, as we'll see later on. But this is where this stuff begins to play out. And then the, this development of purgatory, as we see here, which relieves, you're able to relieve those who have gone on um, in their sins who are in, purgator- in purgatory by having a certain mass. We, can see, we begin to see how that was transformed to also, also offering up monies for the church as well later on. Um, so, again, huge you know, practices of the church being put in place here. Um, by Gregory the Great. Um, throughout Gregory the Great's life and onto his successors to 741, the election of a pope had to be confirmed by the authorities in Constantinople before the pope could become created as Bishop of Rome. In other words, the East was greater than the West until King Charlemagne on Christmas Day of 800 AD when he was um, anointed in Rome. Okay? Um, one of the wonderful things we get under... King Charlemagne, there is feudalism. And does anybody, anybody know what that is before, without reading the, the sheet? Just curious. I wouldn't know what this was until I, yeah? Just because it's my kids history. I Great. was reminded about it, but um, the king owns the land and the knights work for him to be able to be lords over the land and then the, I mean, it's just this hierarchical, and then it goes down to the, well, there's somebody in between, but then the peasants basically... Yes, yeah. Okay, so this is this whole hierarchical, hierarchical system. Can't talk today. Um, based on holding, the holdings of land there, as you see, in which each feudal lord, while receiving um, uh, homage for those who own their lands to him, paid, paid homage, homage excuse me, to the greater lord from whom he had received his. And uh, at first, grants of land were for a lifetime, but eventually they became hereditary. Uh, since a vassal often held land under various lords, the obligations of the vassalage could always be evaded by claiming a conflicting allegiance to another lord. This is important because you begin to see how the popes uh, begin to also intertwine in this. The result of all this was the political and economic fragmentation of Western Europe and the decline of all centralized power, including that of kings. The church was also affected by this since... Uh, that was a new word, uh, bishoprics. Bishoprics and abbeys often had vast holdings of land. Bishops, abbots, and abbesses became uh, magnets uh, whose uh, support all sought. Um, therefore, the question of whom had the authority to name those who would fill such positions became one of enormous political significance. Um, this will become this. This will get more play and attention in the next 500 years um, as things move out into um, into England and into, into those areas. But this is. Uh, one, one of the, the rules from, for the monasteries was to have no possessions. This is going back to Benedict's rule. And, uh, and, and so since you couldn't have any possessions, uh, oftentimes what was happening was large fortunes and, and, and estates were donated to these monasteries. And so these monasteries became just enormously wealthy and also became the holders of some of this land. And so this also began to fuel um, just... There's a lot of greed now involved. There's just a lot of power and authority in places that don't need the power and authority. Um, uh, and, and if we know anything about man, we know what happens when those things come together. 
But um, this begins to mark the, the decline, as we say, or, or the decay of the papacy for this time period. The crowning of Charlemagne put the papacy in an ambiguous position. On the one hand, since the popes seemed to have the right to crown emperors, they enjoyed the great prestige beyond the Alps. This is referring to the Western Church. But, on the other hand, in Rome itself, chaos often reigned. Thus, those who had the power to dispose of the empire seemed unable to govern their own city. And this, in turn, made the papacy an easy prey for the ambitious, one to be had by bribery, deceit, or even violence. Okay? So, Christian convictions up to the first thousand years here. Uh, any questions on anything we've talked about, though, at this point? Christian convictions up to this point, human beings, because they are corrupted by sin, need to be saved, and that this salvation is wrought by the merit of Christ communicated through God's grace. All right, well, what shape was this salvation to take? And this was essentially the question that the church had to answer. According to the church, the distinctive medieval shape of those convictions was the belief that saving grace, not saving race, comes to people through the sacraments of a social setting defined by the cooperation of church and state. And this is where you begin to see the seven sacraments of the church taking form and shape and um, becoming the main practices of the church. Um, Jumping ahead, because we're going to read from Aquinas, he wrote, A sacrament was the sign of a holy thing insofar as it makes men holy. That is, sacraments stood for spiritual realities and worked toward the salvation of those who participated in them. And what are the seven sacraments? sacraments we have listed there. These are seven sacraments that the idea is that they would go with you throughout every stage of life. Again, this is good stuff, right? There's nothing wrong in and of what they are trying to do at this point in time as a church. Uh, We'll get to what we believe is a sacrament uh, later on. But what they're trying to do is create these stages throughout all of life that, um, that God's grace enters into. Okay, uh, so the first is baptism. Why? Because this is this is this is a sacrament of birth. This is God's grace to you at birth. Confirmation is the coming of age. Sacrament of coming of age. Penance, the confession of sin. Uh, the Eucharist, which would be spiritual nourishment. Uh, marriage, which is the sacrament of creating family. Extreme unction, which would be uh, those that uh, are on their deathbed, and the the priest would come and um, pray over you. And then finally, ordination, which makes possible the provision of the sacraments. So, um, you know, again, this is the church's way of trying to figure out what does this salvation look like practically. And, um, you know, for the most part, like these things seem to be pretty good things. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, I think what you see is you got to take it over the 500 years up to 1,000 A.D. and where it's the gradual process of saying, okay, we're going to put these things in place, um, and be- as these things begin to become come into place, they change and take on different value. So over those years, these things become the mark of how salvation is is you know is is held onto. Now, the church would still say we believe in a doctrine of faith to some degree, but these things begin to overshadow that doctrine. And that's what the problem becomes. Because, as we'll see later on, 
I have more power if I'm able to ha- if I'm if, I, if I'm forcing you in one sense or obligating you to come to the church to take part in these sacraments, right? Uh, for those who have loved ones who have passed on who are in purgatory, um, I have more you know power and authority over those people and those things and those practices than to talk about a salvation by faith alone which, of course, is all part of the biblical faith, but we also do these other things. And so that has always been a mixture of the Catholic Church moving forward is we believe in salvation by faith, but it's plus something else as well. And, and at, at this point, John, I'm just wondering how this is where this stuff is beginning to formulate as to when and where this really begins to take shape. I think we, we see it more in the, the third 500 years, but um, you know, this is where this stuff takes off. Correct. Right. Because he is the he is the ultimate right. authority and he defines what tradition is. Right. <clears throat> Which is a great segue to scripture alone. Right? So you can begin to see we're moving into the area here where just has been said, the the Pope is the one who's going to become the authority in all of this and is going to, you know, highlight certain practices and not talk about others. Who has the authority to do that? Who has the authority to, to say what is true and what's not true? And part of the Reformation, uh, part of the reason of the Reformation was to come back to the fact that the only thing that has the authority to ascribe um, salvation for people is Scripture alone. The only thing. Um, it's not the church. It's not the Pope. It's, not any, any, it's Scripture alone. So that was, uh, that was good. Um, let me read this to you, and then we'll, we'll uh, close it up here. While all the practices of Christendom did not start under Charlemagne or Leo III, the symbolic import of their action, with the Pope providing a crown to the most powerful ruler in Europe while invoking the memory of imperial Rome, is, in the light of history, incredibly potent. There was now a new comprehensive empire to replace the one destroyed by the drift of east-west disengagement and the armies of Islam. In this new empire, the institutional church, with the pope at its head, would exert immense theoretical importance. And this brings us up to the 11th century, where we'll pick up next week with the great schism of the East and West Church. Okay? Um, just some things to think about as we look at church history, because if, you know, one of the importance of church history and history in general is to learn from those who have gone before us, but also to align our thoughts and our practices with those who have gone before us. And I think it's, it's pretty clear as we look at this to see uh, that what ruins or distorts God's truth for his people is uh, too much centralized power and too much pride and, and not enough accountability. And um, what can start out as even a good thing or a good idea, uh, if it's not rooted in the things that we would consider truth, which would be scripture and we, which would be um, what the solas are going to represent for us, uh, this is what begins to distort, and it starts by just, you know, it's a little subtle, you know, a little subtle um, you know, addition here or subtraction there. And um, I would encourage you all to continue to k- kind of think about that as we go through uh, the rest of this history um, as to what it is that distorts God's truth for his people. But and what I want to leave you with is that the church and her doctrine blaze on, and I can't think of uh, any other... Um, summary of this than, than our own Catholic friend G.K. Chesterton uh, 
from his book Orthodoxy, who, as he's talking about, um, he's talking about modernism, but he's, he, he, he correlates it to the fact that no matter what heresy, no matter what it is that, that, um, that the church has faced, um, it manages to, you know, to, to, to escape it and to blaze forward in hope. And I'll just, I'll, I'll leave you with his words. Um, it is always easy to be a modernist as it is easy to be a snob, to have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration, which fashion after fashion and sect after sect uh, along, uh, set along the historic path of Christendom that would indeed have been simple. It is always simple to fall. There are an infinity there are an infinity of angels at which one falls, only one at which one stands. To the fallen or, or uh, to have fallen into any one of the fads from Gnosticism, which we did didn't discuss, but that was an early heresy, and uh, from Gnosticism to Christian Science would indeed have been obvious and tame. But to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages, the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling and erect. And that is Chesterton's vision of the church, that, um, that we'll see that amongst all the sin, amongst all the pollution, amongst all of how man gets in here and messes it up, there's this blazing chariot that is, that is going forward, reeling and erect with God's truth. And nothing is ever going to stop that. And I think that one of, those, one of the brightest spots of that comes to us in the Reformation. So we'll talk more about that next week. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your history, our history of the church, and uh, your hand in the midst of it, and, um, and, and the graciousness in which you um, allow uh, us to wrestle and struggle and uh, figure out um, how these truths from Scripture apply to our lives and what that looks like in practice here. Uh, but most important, we're thankful for your, 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 your guiding protection of your church, uh, that it hasn't gone too far in one direction, uh, but that how you have continued to preserve a remnant, as it were, uh, that you have continued to preserve your truth, and as it moves forward to, to uh, accomplish your plans, we can have hope in that. We can know that your faithfulness to us throughout history will continue uh, long after we have left this, this, this place. Uh, we pray, Lord, that all that we do and, and talk about and see here uh, would be for your glory alone. We ask this all in your Son's name. Amen.